One of my favorite podcasts from the last year is a show called Everything is Alive. It's hosted by a guy named Ian Chillog. Now, the premise of this show is that everything is alive. I wonder where they got the name. On the show, Ian interviews Lewis, a can of cola, Chioki, a grain of sand, and a lot of other objects like a satellite, a newspaper, a subway seat, a baseball cap, a pregnancy test, and a bath towel. Each of them gets their own episode, and all of them are given voices by some delightful actors and friends of the show, and all of them actually start out kind of funny and playful like you'd expect, but then they take a left turn into kind of a deep moment, something that you didn't realize it would be like to be a can of cola or grain of sand or other object. So for example, Lewis, the can of cola, has been sitting on the shelf a long time And he's ready to be opened and drunk, which is essentially him entering a new phase or maybe the end of his life. It's unclear. And so host Ian gently obliges and drinks the Coke. Chioki, in his episode, The the Grain of Sand, he is incapable of talking about himself as a singular entity because grains of sand are pluralities defined by being a tiny part of the whole. And man, wouldn't society benefit from more of us thinking that way? Then, in a future episode, Chioki reappears as a pane of glass, melding together with his community more fully. And so on. You get the idea of everything is alive. It's fun, funny, light, and beautiful. But it's kind of weird. The thing is, it's a crafted, planned weird. Sometimes I think about Ian. Ian is a host who tells stories about inanimate objects. I mean, that's what he does on his show. It's, It's a little weird, right? And yet, that guy the guy who interviews cans of Coke and bath towels and pregnancy tests, that guy thinks the show we profile today is beyond description. Here's Ian jokingly trying to convey what he does to describe the show we're talking about today, a show called Richard's Famous Food Podcast. Here's his pretend back and forth with a friend. Most of my conversations about this show go like this. Have you heard of Richard's Famous Food Podcast? It's amazing. No, what is it? I, I don't know. This is Three Clips. Welcome to another episode of Three Clips, where we try to make sense of great podcasts a few little pieces at a time. I am your host, Jay Akunzo, and I'm the founder of MarketingShowrunners.com. At MSR, we want to help marketers find and share their voices and make a show that makes a difference in the world, a difference for their audience, for their careers, for their companies. We want to help you shift the culture for the better by making a better podcast or video series. You can stay up to date with all of our work at Marketing Showrunners and join marketers from brands like Red Bull, Salesforce, the BBC, the New York Times, Adobe, and thousands of startups and small businesses, all of whom get our monthly newsletter for free, MSR Monthly. To subscribe, go to marketingshowrunners.com and click the big subscribe button on any page. Today, we go inside Richard's Famous Food Podcast. Richard's Famous is hard to describe, but it's also hard to stop listening to if you like this sort of thing, and, and I deeply do. This is one of those shows that was beloved, shared, and discussed pretty often by hardcore podcast nerds, and I have to give a shout out to Tom Webster from Edison Research for turning me onto this show. The show also impressed cultural critics the world over as they got write-ups in Vulture, The Wall Street Journal, Hot Pod, The AV Club, and more. The best description of Richard's Famous Food Podcast comes from Nick Kwa, a podcast writer for Vulture and the creator of the newsletter Hot Pod. He writes that RFFP is, quote, a bizarre, loopy, and aggressively bombastic series of vignettes that smashes two different types of shows together to create something completely different and barely explainable. So my attempt to explain this, it's like Adult Swim meets a food podcast. But you're going to hear us try to explain it in different terms in a little bit. Episodes of the podcast were released whenever the host could get to them throughout season one, which kind of meant that a single season spanned several years. The episodes talked about bone broth, natural wine, fermentation, and more. They'd pick a theme and explore it, kind of. (laughs) They never exceed 30 minutes an episode, nor do they seem to have a target, And it doesn't matter. They toss out every bit of conventional wisdom about podcasting in making this show. And we're going to try to make sense of that today. And by the way, I keep saying they when I reference this show, but they is Richard Parks III, the host, writer, editor, and all thingser behind this show, as well as a food writer and documentarian. And yet, 
Richard does indeed assume the role of a literal they on this show, whether that's acting as himself, the host and narrator, or as the voice of his fake nephew, Jimmy, a tiny pickle, or maybe he's acting out the pod god who doesn't take kindly to Richard's famous breaking all the rules of podcasting, or the podcast police. The list goes on. I'm reminded of the quote from Walt Whitman. Do I contradict myself? Very well then. I contradict myself. I'm a large pickle. I contain multitudes of tiny little gherkins. That remix of the famous quote will make no sense to you unless you know the podcast or listen to this episode of Three Cliffs. Uh, But it's that idea of multitudes. It's that messiness, both the literal multitudes of Richard coming out on his show and the metaphorical mess of making stuff and publishing it and all the seemingly disparate, disconnected ideas. It's that mess that I waded into headfirst with Richard, and we landed in some pretty unexpected places. That's all coming up after this quick break. This episode of Three Clips is brought to you by Contently, my best buds in the content marketing tech industry. For one reason, they hate hollow, get-me-over content almost as much as I do. Their customers range from Google to Dell to Marriott, and they use Contently's platform to manage the workflow of their content, get insights and data, and also receive suggestions from Contently's AI for the best formats that work best on the right channels to serve a specific audience. Contently, most importantly, has put together a content strategy course that they want to let us know about, which is both insightful and I think really weird and wonderful, kind of matches the theme of our episode today. Contently's course is not full of droning videos. They can't stand that stuff either. So instead, you can join the team at Contently as they race around New York City and their offices to learn creative strategy, publishing techniques, and marketing ideas from some of the best in the world. To take that course, visit contently.com slash three clips, the number three, the word clips, and check out all kinds of weird and wonderful moments inside of a content strategy course. Yes, that's possible. Contently.com slash three clips, form, fill, required. And now let's get inside the making of Richard's famous food podcast with the man, the myth, the mustache, Richard Parks III. So Richard, if you had to pitch your show in the classic Hollywood style, so it's like X meets Y or this thing meets that thing meets the other thing, how would you pitch Richard's famous food podcast? It's Pee Wee's Playhouse meets the splendid table making out with wily e. coyote jump into the brine <laughs> that i mean everything we're about to talk about is probably the most original of anything we have talked about on this show that by far as a pitch was the most original no one has ever brought in a looney tunes character to describe their show well i assume we're good to go on a three picture deal then i mean we're coming out of here <laughs> with a contract right that's right. I mean, you know, I'm not exactly the decision maker. Like, it's, my dad runs the studio, so it's like, you know, I'm just kind of filling in for him. He's he's down in, in Malibu, and you know, so oh, yeah. We, well, I mean, obviously, I'm gonna have to talk to my guys about it. We're we're gonna get agents involved, but I, I'm glad to hear that you're interested in the project. I, Richard, I think you're a star. I think you are a star. I think you'll continue <laughs> to be a star, and the studio is prepared to to give you what I say is a very lucrative offer. Hey, man, I got a face for radio. Let's do this thing. <laughs> It's a good thing you do have a face for radio, though, because uh, I, I think the the mustache is something that um, yeah. it's become part of your brand. I'm looking at the podcast cover. I know you do have a mustache in person, but there's a drawing of a pickle as your podcast cover, and he's like floating in space with headphones and a microphone, and then best of all, that Tom Selleck-like mustache. Yes. But I, for, if people don't know your show, the thing I want to point out, and it does start with the cover art, that cover art being a pickle, that's like... That's the tip of the pickle with you. Like you have, <laughs> you have a whole episode about the Christmas pickle. You talk about jumping into the brine in your episodes. Uh, you remix the word pickle to what I think is the defining word of the show, or maybe even all of podcasting or the future of food journalism, uh, which is when you say pickle. Pickle. Uh, so my question is, Richard, what's with you and pickles? I mean, I've always pickled. I am a home fermenter a home pickler i make vinegar pickles and 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 fermented products of all types i make sauerkraut i make a fermented hot sauce every year and this whole thing the the cover of the podcast and this this whole association with pickles or picles as we call them in the context of the show started from that and the logo comes from i I was threatening to start a pickle business at some point 
And my friend James Braithwaite, who is a great illustrator, who I met in a snowball fight in Montreal in 2001 in front of our apartments, we lived on the same block, drew me as a pickle. And since I have a mustache, he put the mustache on there. And then when I started the podcast years later, um, it just made sense to put a little old-timey radio mic in that guy's hands. And uh, I mean, that's the spirit <laughs> animal of the show. It's, it's that and Orson Welles is pretty much all you need to know. I like it. I could, you could have pitched it like that too. So, okay, for those listening, we will dive dive into the brine, as you like to say, and we're going to get a peek at the picle in later episodes or later clips that we're going to play, <laughs> but we're going to start in a different place. Uh, so normally, Richard, we like to riff a little bit with our guests just a little bit before we dive into the clips. But the whole time you and I are going to riff, if we were to do that, I'd be saying, yeah, Richard hosts this podcast. And people would have this thing in their head, this idea of what I'm talking about when I say that you host a podcast about food and and maybe an entertaining one at that. But no, what they're picturing is so not the type of show you actually host. It's just so hard to describe that I think the best way to proceed is just skip all the preamble. And we're going to dive right into our first clip so we can get a taste for this this very interesting pique that you've put together. And we're going to do what you say, which is we're going to jump into the brine. So let's get started with our very first clip today, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Mm. Coming up on the very first episode of Richard's famous food podcast, Bone Broth. Bone broth. It's the latest food craze, but what is it? We take a cross-country broth voyage to find out, starting at Manhattan's Brodo. In LA, a soup and scotch cocktail is served off the menu. And have you ever had broth at a brothel? It's the San Francisco broth bar where meaty liquids mix with cutting-edge technology. Oh, something in here smells really, really, like, really, really insanely good to me right now. It's Richard's Famous Food Podcast. Let's say that you roasted a chicken last night. The chicken was delicious, tender, juicy, crispy skin. You froze its bones in your freezer, and now you want to make stock. How do you do that? How do I do that? Make stock from chickens? You say? (laughs) Dare I tell you? My, my stock tips? First, you take the bones out of the freezer. Throw a little olive oil. All right. So what's interesting is given what I know about your show now and the way you produce it, I don't know if you'd necessarily have laughed there anymore. You know, you have a little like self-knowing laugh there. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So interesting. yeah, it was just a weird thing that, that stuck out to me. But just to start making sense of that clip. Let's make a scale from zero to 10 and score it based on how it stacks up to other moments. And I want to assign the scale. It's a weirdness scale. And we'll say that 10 is the weirdest thing you've ever done on the show. And zero is like the most cliche, stereotypical thing that a host could possibly do on a narrative style podcast. So like maybe zero is you played a quote from a guest and then you cut in and said, that's Richard Parks the third. And then some xylophone music starts. Like that's, that's zero. Okay. So 10 is the weirdest. Zero is that moment. Where does this stack up relative to the rest of the show in your mind? It's the first moment you ever put out publicly. Jeez. I mean, that first 30 seconds to me is like, that's like a zero, you know? I mean, I'm doing the very standard, typical public radio, 30 second billboard. I tell you everything that we're going to get into in the show. I've, I've sort of teased all the segments but in that first 30 seconds, there's also a fair bit of 10, <laughs> I think, because, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that I'm doing all that stuff that is completely out of the convention of not, not just podcasting, but, but public radio shows, you know, from time immemorial. But I'm doing it in a different way. Like, you know, like, why am I, why am I so enthused and speaking in this sort of like self-aware way? Why is there like a monster truck rally reverb effect on my voice? <laughs> you know, why Why are there um, versions of me singing about bone broth in the background? So I feel like that's kind of like a 10 almost. It's like, a, yeah. so, so I guess it's a five that first 30 seconds. I can see a scenario where like if, if eventually the episodes and certainly some of the clips we're going to get to, if that's you like really ripping apart 
the medium and playing with the parts and pieces. This is you kind of taking what's been established by others and like stretching it a little bit. It hasn't quite ripped, but I do see like, right. I see the seams starting to show a little bit. Does that, does that make sense? Totally. I mean, I, I think it's kind of self-aware listening to it. You know, it, it's like, but I think that's what I do on my show. A lot of the time is, is that I, I find myself doing a convention. You know, I find myself within a cliche all of a sudden, but I notice that as I'm doing it and I try to notice it. And then I just ask, well, why are you doing this? And and if I have a good reason as to why I should, then I leave it in there. But then I ask a second question, which is, but how can I do this in a way that only I can do? And that's sort of where I try to land with a, a lot of stuff that I make, I think, and, and especially this show is, look, use the cliche if it works, but don't let it dictate how you sound. You right. know, it don't don't fall into the familiar patterns and forms of public radio, podcasting, storytelling, whatever, or turns of phrase. But if there's a reason to do it, do it. But do it in your own way. Own it. Own the cliche. Make yes. it yours. I, I like that you said it that way. You know, why would I add to the noise of this world, this incredibly static-filled universe that we now live in, if I didn't have something different to offer? So yeah, I, tr yeah. I try to think about that. But um, yeah, don't put a hat on a hat. Dave Eggers said that to me, uh, the, the novelist and the founder of McSweeney's Publishing, which I had a long professional association with. He told me, he asked me to make this, this hour-long radio drama. It was sort of meant as like an update of War of the Worlds by Orson Welles, except it was starring Wayne Coyne from The Flaming Lips, the lead singer. And he wakes <laughs> no up way. and he, he has a face-shaped mass in his leg. And I'm like a reporter on the scene covering this thing live. This is all Dave's idea. But I remember as we were writing that and, and then bands show up and start singing to it. But Dave said, don't put a hat on a hat. And what I took that to mean is like, so if, if you have a, uh, a clairvoyant polar bear, make sure that he doesn't speak eight languages too. Uh, <laughs> and I'm probably guilty of putting a hat on a hat in Richard's Famous Food podcast a time or two. I, I would say that there's a there's an ability that you you have as a host to steer into what people are already thinking and then either go a level deeper or mess with it. Like a really easy example that requires no post-production is if you are trying to teach something and you explore a topic that lots and lots of people before you in your niche have already explored or already talked about, just saying like, look, I know we talk about the importance of learning from failure as an entrepreneur. Like everyone talks about that. But here's our thesis. And then you try to diagnose something a little bit deeper. There's like a little bit of a, an acknowledgement that, you know what, there's a cliche coming up or I know what you're thinking or wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And I think you do the wink, wink, nudge, nudge a lot, which, which I want to get to in the next section. But the thing I want to point out while we're on this clip is like, it's so clear from the jump, like moment zero that you have an appreciation just as an individual for music and sound, which shows up throughout the show. And and I've been racking my brain trying to figure out how to articulate this, Richard. But when someone is just like, I want to create this cool thing, for some reason, they execute on this idea well. They're like, here's my inspiration. It's way outside the echo chamber of what I'm doing today. And it comes out okay. And then marketers get a hold of that. And they're like, we're going to do this because hashtag authenticity. And it's like, this is the opposite of what you should be doing. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you uh, for, for saying that. And I think you articulated it quite well. I don't know. I mean, I feel like this work, you know, this type of work is just so hard for me. It's just so hard to do. You have to put so much of yourself into it anyway. But at the end of the day, like you're your only proxy. Like it, when I'm making Richard's famous food podcast, like I am my only proxy for the audience. And so I just look for what resonates with me, what surprises and delights me. And then I try to create that feeling in another person through my show. And it sounds simple and um, it, it sounds like, you know, it's, it's, it's not an earth shattering idea, but I think that it's what guides every decision and decisions like the one you're talking about. You know, it's like that Frank Zappa video I've seen passed around online. He's talking about the 60s and music and the perception of the 60s as this thing that came out of the youth culture, that all that music that he was making was something that was, you know, green lit by like long hairs, you know, pot smoking long hairs. And he's like, no, no, no. These guys were old cigar chomping bald dudes who didn't know what the hell we were doing, <laughs> you know, and they just let us do it. Right. They said, we don't know what these kids are doing, but 
maybe it'll work. Let's put it out and see. And that's where all that music came from. Then he says, but the problem came in when all the 25-year-old long-haired guys started getting hired as executives. And then they started telling all these old guys what was cool and they ruined everything. Yeah. And that's how you, you get the, you know, sort of depending on which side of the cultural fence you're on, a, a sort of reversion into, you know, what was maybe more familiar sort of pop forms, you know, after a short period of great innovation in the late 60s and early 70s. So it's a really hard show to just describe. So are there other elements, other things about you besides the food and the music that you can point to and say, like, these are fully my quirks coming through? I mean, I guess what you're talking about is just like the sense of humor and the characters that, I mean, all of that stuff just grows out of, you know, on the show there, it's not just peak lay. It's, I have these weird ways of saying normal words. Like I say, podcast instead of podcast <laughs> and, uh, actually and and uh you know anyways is like a double harmony sing song anyways and so it's like all those types of things and and all the characters you know my nephew jimmy the corny show who comes in and and speaks in a falsetto and and asks me kind of like stupid questions jimmy's like the MacGuffin. he's like the guy who comes in and and kicks the story forward because i just felt like it was just too bland of an approach to just relay information and dry narration i was like i need I need my little nephew to come in and ask me stupid questions. But Jimmy can also be very revealing in in his questions where he's like, well, why are you doing this? Wait, is it your job? Is this how you make money? And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I'm making a podcast. It's very serious. It's something adults do. And so I think he can be very revealing too. But anyway, all the sense of humor and I guess, you know, the, the weird turns of phrase or weird pronunciations just come out of like, you know, it's just like jokes that stuff that I say to myself or in my own head or to my friends and family, you know, like all those things have roots in like weird inside jokes. And yeah, like we grew up, I, I was born in 1982. Like I grew up in like the very, you know, the golden age of the Simpsons, you know, like season three, you know, like where there was great storytelling and sometimes like moralizing, you know, in a way like a folktale way, you know, it was like, they were like the just so stories, but they were psychedelic and like, and the Simpsons could be very, you know, specifically intellectual or, or specific to LA. I noticed cause I grew up here in LA and I remember I went to college in, in Montreal, and so I was trying to watch all these old Simpsons episodes that were on every day at four o'clock uh, in French in order to try to learn French because I knew the stories a little bit. You know, I could remember them. And I remember there's a joke on The Simpsons, and it was about whether Lisa was going to go to Harvard. And somebody says, no, you're not going to go to Harvard. You're going to go to Brown, you know, as if it's this sort of less than Ivy League school or whatever. And, th and that's sort of the core of the joke. I'm probably battlerizing it. But they had changed that joke in the Quebecois translation of The Simpsons that was playing in Montreal. They had changed that joke to a joke about McGill University and Concordia, which are two schools in Montreal. Anyway, the specificity of The Simpsons and the sort of, uh, you know, the fact that there is like a story going on, but then, then there's also just sort of a freedom to like make any joke you want as long as it is faithful to the characters. I think that that's what I try to do on my show. It's like, if it's faithful to the world, then I just try to say yes to that, you know? And I just try to say yes until I've the ideas come to full fruition and I've built it in a sonic way or whatever it is, listen to it in the context of the show, and then I decide whether it works or not. I, I think that a lot of my show is just me saying yes to every question, you know? It, it's like, how many sound effects would you like on this? Yes. You know, like, should I break into song? Yes. You know, and just keep saying yes until you've created a world that is very recognizably itself but i'm also doing you know i'm trying to write and explain and give information and feature voices in the way that i would in in all of my journalistic pursuits you know which i'm kind of a journalist it is something that the result of all of that i think is if you the host are the show's most unfair advantage you don't exist anywhere else no one else has you as a host like it, for it to become the best version of it or the fullest version, you have to be fully present. I do feel like that's the result of everything you're talking about. And yet I see a lot of shows where most, most hosts don't seem to be proactive about using their own quirks or traits or interests. And they kind of try to fit the mold without then supplementing. You know, it's one thing to copy who inspires you temporarily, but eventually inject who you are. It's another thing to just stay as a derivative. And I do feel like a lot of hosts get to the point where they're on the precipice of, 
I am going to be my funny self or my introspective self. Or for me personally, in all the shows I've made, I do appreciate like big saccharine emotional moments. That's just who I am. I like the big narrative style story about an athlete and, you know, the meaning that food has or whatever. And so like if I wasn't able to use that in my shows, I don't think my shows would be as good. But I do see a lot of hosts that get to the point where they need that and they pull back or they don't inject that in their work. And I'm wondering, can you try and take a stab at like why that might be the case for a lot of creators in general? I mean, it's scary, right? It's like the most vulnerable thing you can do is is put yourself in your work. You know, the funny thing is about my show is that like it comes across one way and, you know, there's certainly a lot of like arch comedy and not taking myself seriously and all that stuff is is very much a big part of it. But also it's, for me, it's extremely personal. You know, it's the most personal thing I've done by far. And like friends of mine from like 20 years ago will listen to my podcast and, and they'll text me and be like, this is like hanging out with you 20 years ago, you know, like, like sitting on the couch in our apartment, like joking around. And so I think that speaks to whatever it is about, you know, my personality that I've decided to put into this show, but I don't think it's right for every project, you know, personal stuff is super hard. It's like, who are you? Why are you there? What version of you are you going to be? And why, you know, you, you have to have reasons for all this stuff. And, um, if you do it wrong, it's like uh, it'd be like trying to break dance at the, at the talent show, you know, with no music on and, and just hearing crickets or whatever. You know, it's like you're up there alone. Like there's nothing to hide behind, especially in a radio show or a podcast. It's such an intimate medium. It's it's you. It's your voice. Um, you're in someone's mind when when you're making your show. But I mean, I don't know. Because I do it all the time. I pull back all the time. Maybe not so much in Richard's Famous, but like in in other parts of my work, you know, I think a lot of my work that I've done less in radio, but more, you know, like I come more from like print and um, documentary film and, and I've done a lot of stuff that's very formally conventional. And I have put myself in, you know, sometimes the personality has to come through in more subtle ways, I guess. I don't know. I want to play like two little bonus clips to, to dovetail into our second clip. So the, the idea here is that these two moments eventually get twisted and remixed and reused, and they become a big part of the identity of the whole show. But these are the first two instances that they appear. So I wanted to play that for you. And I also think it's going to help ease our listeners into some weirder waters to come with the second and third clips. Uh, so this is a little bit of a dovetail into that. So let me just play. I'll play two clips back to back for us here. Anyways, the story of Bone Broth begins with a chef in New York. He had just turned 40 and he was suffering from gout. Yes, gout is still a thing we suffer from. It's not a disease that went away with the end of the Tudor dynasty. Anyways. And now, Vavoom to the moon. <laughs> it's so beautiful. He's flying. It's Richard's famous food podcast. Why did you start remixing anyways and saying it as a performed version? It comes across as something that's like really small and maybe you're just like, this seems fun, like shrug in the moment. But then it comes up a ton. Like it's I think it's like the longest running, most used, almost like inside joke that recurring listeners can have with you. So what what's going on there? Like why? Yeah, it just seems like it was a throwaway thing, but now it's like all over the show. Yeah, that's a good question. Why Why do I keep doing that? I don't know. I mean, yeah, the first time I did it, it's just one of these words that people say. It's like a weird tick that we all have where we're on a tangent or we've forgotten what we're talking about or we say something that's slightly awkward. And then I've just noticed a lot of us say, anyways, you know, or, or, or as if to undercut what we just said somehow. So it's like this, um, you know, subtle, like, like transition, I think in everyday in quotidian speech, you know, in, in a certain sector of American society, I guess, uh, North American, perhaps instead of keeping it subtle, I just thought it would be funny to bring it up to 11, you know, like it's, it's like, I don't know. It's like trying to get out of something. Yeah. Well, I think about, you know, I'm a huge fan of like Mike Birbiglia, the stand-up comic. And he has these little uh, little verbal tics, uh, and it's definitely rehearsed because the way the 
any great comedian works. You know, it's it's scripted. It looks like they're getting out all those moments, but they know all the moves, right? And so he'll do things where he tacks on one extra word at the end of his joke, like he's going to continue to talk. And he doesn't just let the punchline linger. He, like, redirects it. So he'll be like, and that's why you never pick up a couch from the street. So... And, like, because you weren't expecting that last line and because he used the word so and let it linger, for some reason, the joke lands better. And it's kind of like, you know, I'm listening to Richard's Famous and you deliver some kind of line that is intended to be funny. It's not so obviously funny, though, that it's like the logical combination of a joke, right? You're telling a story or you're doing a weird moment. And and then right on the back end of you landing us somewhere entertaining you cut in that really loud sound effect laced anyways. You know, it's the same way as, as Mike Birbiglia being like, never buy a couch off the street. So, and, and I, I, for some reason, I just latched onto that little moment and it somehow made the, the punchlines, the comedy better thanks to the redirection. Hmm. Well, look, it's important. I think it's just like, it's it's something that we all do. And, and I'm just like trying to call attention to it. And then, I mean, on, on the second episode or third episode, whatever of, of the show, I was like, I can't do anyways anymore. Like that that's played out. Like, you know, I, I did that. But but then I, I realized that if I did it again, it would start to be part of how you know you're listening to the show and, and just sort of, you know, the creation of the world that you're in when you're listening to the show. Um, you're like, oh, well, there's a... Uh, Auntie M and uh, and you were there too and there's Toto and you know it's like all of a sudden you're in the world and you know I, I've tried I've collected a grab bag of those now that I can I can use that fit in naturally to whatever narration I'm doing or whatever story building you know anyways is like it's a hinge you know it's like going from one thing to the next it's a transition you're always going to need a transition you're always going to need to put punctuation on something and so I have a way to do that now that is that is uniquely my own the anyways makes sense. So, you know, like you said, uh, people say it a lot. It's it's something that you can kind of lightly parody. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot of hosts will say that word anyways. And you're kind of like Richard famousizing it, so to speak. And it becomes this little pivot point, this little hinge that two moments can kind of connect off of. Vavoom to the moon. <laughs> that seems kind of plucked out of nowhere. Where, where did that come from? I don't know. I have no idea, man. <laughs> uh, uh, like, you know, it's just like we, we had to end the show and, and then it was like, uh, you know, at the end of the first episode, there's like a little like uh, organ riff and and it ends and it just sort of decays. And I was like, is that it? Like, is the show over? Like, I just thought it'd be fun to put one more little sucker punch in there. And, and you know, I thought it'd be fun to jump on a rocket and go to the moon. And... um yeah, I don't know. All right, so... I have no excuse. No, that, that's fine. I'm not asking you to make excuses. I'm asking you to just, you know, to just own it forever and publicly <laughs> on record for all time. Um, so this is, the, uh, this is the official second clip of our three. And this is from the episode that you and I hinted at earlier about Chamoy. Uh, I got to be honest, Wikipedia was no help at all. So I'll default to you. Okay. What is, what well, is Chamoy? <laughs> Well, so chamoy is a sour, spicy uh, fruit condiment uh, that comes in mostly in in sauce form. Um, it's bright red, and it is beloved in uh, Mexico and in in Mexican American culture in the United States. But I had never seen it defined at length anywhere or in an in depth way anywhere, and certainly never in a podcast. And so, I decided to look into it. Got it. So it, the setup for this clip is the episode's about Chamoy. You were talking to your your nephew to open the episode, and then and then this happens. I realized something in this moment because Turner had never had a Mexican candy before. He'd never had Chamoy. But when you're a kid, there comes a time, and I think we can all relate to this. When Podcast police, turn that f- music off. I can't. It's underscore. Underscore. For my documentary storytelling podcast. Yeah, figures. So you know you were doing Ira Glass in a gastrocomedic zone? I guess the reflection moment I was coming to was a little derivative. It's called generic podcasting, and it's punishable by death. Death? Yeah, it helps with the story stakes. Um, Uncle Richie? Yeah, Jimmy, buddy, it's really not a good time. I thought I was your nephew. You are, but Turner's my real nephew. You're my made-up, pickle-shaped food podcast nephew. You're a piclet. What? You don't exist outside of the theoretical confines of this sometimes semi-fictional gastro-comedy podcast. Eh. 
anyways. I am real, right? Now, now, Jimmy, let's just lie you down. Close your crocs and just count the mustard seeds jumping over the little crust of baguette. There. episode, I'm trying to make a more straight-ahead podcast. Woodcast? Woodcast. Podcast. About, uh, hard candy. Hard candy. And to understand hard candy, first you have to go back. Okay, so there's there's so many little things in there I could make a whole episode about, like, the even the lip smack and the the breath you take before saying something that's slightly over dramatized, like the piano and the clicking noise, the wood block that's like my xylophone mentioned earlier. It's a moment that to me summarized your desire to subvert the medium. I'm wondering where that desire comes from. Like I am happiest personally when I'm making something that's almost born out of like righteous indignation. Like I'm in business. I'm trying to do business content. Why is business content so boring? This is stupid. Let's make something more entertaining or whatever. This is a very subversive moment and on a very subversive podcast. How did, how did that become the type of show you like to make? Like why not do the straight ahead show? I mean, I guess it just feels false when, when you're doing the straight ahead thing. You know, I think it's what we were talking about earlier. Like in that clip, there's every convention and every convention is is called out almost i feel like you know like like the music and the read and you have the, to go back the signposting yes yeah right the sort of very conventional way of telegraphing to the listener what the episode is going to be about and i guess as i was saying earlier you know it's like when i'm doing those things i just feel like i feel like i'm doing someone else you know like i feel like i'm pretending to be ira glass and inside, I'm like, I'm not. I'm Richard Parks the Third. And then how do I, I don't know, summarize that feeling of, I guess it's about the the angst that I feel when I'm doing any kind of storytelling, which is like, is this real? Like, is this authentic to who I am and how I see the world in any way? Why am I doing this otherwise? I'm not breaking news or anything like that. I don't know. It's it's just a very, I guess I have a contrarian spirit in ways, you know, I, I, I hope that it comes across that I really don't want there ever to be a butt of a joke in this show. You know, I want to be kind to people. I, I love the conventions that I am underlining in these various flip ways. And I hope that it really is done with love. And I hope that that comes across somehow. But for me, it's like, it feels like falling short if I'm not being true to myself somehow if I don't hear myself in the work then I feel like you know I feel like I don't have enough of an excuse to even do it I think about the phrase that sort of was beaten into me like my first job out of school I worked for a large corporation with the phrase was best practices and it's like you're told that here's how this is done and that's kind of the answer like served up to you almost like in school where in school they put a premium on you have the answer it's the correct answer don't be wrong best practices are kind of like the workplace equivalent of that and but what i've come to realize is is all the best practices really if you like analyze it hard enough is it's just a possibility that someone else has vetted and i always thought like isn't it a better idea to vet any kind of possibility yourself like instead of trying to grab at a generality or what works on average you're like, okay, that's what a lot of other people have already vetted, which doesn't necessarily mean I have to do it here because my situation is somehow slightly different. And if I can identify how, I can use that information to make choices instead of these secondhand general bits of advice. And I like when somebody is subverting a medium, I think it can come across as one or two of two ways. One is they're disillusioned with that best practice, that standard approach, or they're in some ways sort of like celebrating it, like there's an appreciation and they're acknowledging it. And I always did get the latter from your show. Like there is this appreciation for the medium that you then continue to break down and deconstruct a little bit. And, and I don't know how much of that is intentional, but that's like what I came away with listening to your show. I, I mean, I'm so glad to hear that it comes across that way. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm interested in, you know, it's like when the pen is in hand, you know, like I grew up reading a lot of David Foster Wallace and and uh, like metafiction, you know, or like old school metafiction, like like John Barth and and uh, I don't know, like like George Saunders. And I, I don't know, like, you know, like I'm probably misremembering 
which authors were were most formative in this way. But even if you go back to like 18th century literature, there's a lot of interesting like roots of like contemporary, you know, metafiction where 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 there is this, you know, the author brings his struggle into the work somehow. And that always really kind of resonated with me. And it's something that I guess naturally I do when I'm sitting down and working on the show because I'm thinking so much about all these decisions that I'm making and telling a story. And oftentimes I'm doing things that to me seem like they're borrowed from other people. And so I am obsessed with that. I'm obsessed with why I am doing that. And I naturally start talking about it in these ways that either very direct ways or they're through characters or the type of kind of, uh, you know, sketch comedy that we just heard on the Chamoy episode. But I don't know. I mean, I think that it's um, it's something that I struggle with a lot is, you know, I almost have a rule for myself to never talk about how hard it is to make something while making the thing. That's almost like my only rule when I'm making this podcast and I and I break it all the time <laughs> because because to me, it's it's a human relatable situation of um, what we're doing is we're trying to make sense of the world and, and we're trying to connect with people and, and we're trying to connect other people to other people. You know, we're trying to connect two disparate groups of people, our audience and our our subjects or whatever through stories. And so it's like we spend so much time in that that it becomes like our own struggle. You know, like that's our own human story is like how we do this, what issues those decisions bring up in us. And so I end up talking about that a lot, you know, in in various ways on the show yeah. uh, because it's it's my life. You know, it's 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 all I have is is these decisions and, and these struggles and, and just sort of the, all the ethical, you know, it's not just like how to be a, a maker, uh, whatever. I don't want to use the word artist because I would never call myself an artist. Like, you know, you're someone who puts things together. And so I don't know, to me, it's the hardest thing to do, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's, it's my own, it's my struggle. <laughs> man. It's my struggle. I mean, everybody we've talked to that looks natural, the perception can be they're just naturally good at, say, interviewing. And then you talk to an interviewer and they're like very strategic, very caught up in it. They care about the craft. They practice that. They practice it. They reflect on it. So it's not just like they fire up a microphone and do it. But um, I actually want to play the third clip here because I think this episode that we're about to profile with this clip, it's sort of like the perfect embodiment of the show and, and the work you put into it. So this is a clip from the Christmas pickle episode or Christmas pickle episode, one of my favorites that you've ever done. So let's just go to the clip. Where, oh, where could this pickle be? When Christmas tide approacheth near, the Christmas pickle doth appear. Pickle. For when Santa and his elves are outside a working, Uncle Richie hides a tiny little gherkin. Pickle? Hmm, shiny and bumpy and pickly and green. When hanging in the tree, it's mighty hard to be seen. So I'll hide the pigle in this tree. Oh, but where? Should I hide it here or here? Ah, here. Pigle. That's right. A Christmas pickle. Pigle? Ah, you never heard of it. Pigle. A Christmas pickle? Pigle. Would you like to hear about it? Pigle. On the podcast? Christmas pickle. Would you like to hear about the Christmas pickle on the podcast? You know what? That moment, I think, perfectly captures a lot of the layers to the show where what you talk about is very uniquely you, how you deliver it, and then the layers of editing and post. So when you're doing a straightforward show, even a a slightly layered show like mine, it seems straightforward on how to script it. So how how do you create an episode like that? Like, can you plan and script weird, I guess, is the question. <laughs> I don't think so. For, I mean, for me, 
I try to start with something very simple and I just try to do it well, which is put the information in the right order, the structure of the thing. And I just, you know, I go out and report the same way I would for any story. And then I try to put it into a good digestible order the way I would with any story. And then, uh, you know, I try to hold off of anything like sound or music work or character or anything like that until I have that in a very good place and it's working and I can do like a table read essentially with myself because I'm the only one who works on this show um, where I know the story is kind of working. And then I start to build the show by narrating and generally that's when the weird starts to come in the any of the characters or or the jokes or the weird accents and stuff like that that I do <laughs> they're really good they're good thank you thank you very much but that's where that when I'm sitting here putting the show together is is when the ideas come up and then I'm working it over and over again for just trying to make it taut and and lean uh, like a sinew you know like you would any story but as I'm doing that, I'm coming through and I'm building more of the sounds. And, you know, a lot of the sort of like music stuff that I do comes from I'll grab a music bed, put something simple under some dry narration. And then all of a sudden I'm like, well, it'd be funny if I this went a little bigger. And then like I'm singing and, th and then I'm adding a harmony to that. And then I'm adding like four more harmonies. And then I'm playing with effects and then I'm adding explosions. Uh, and then I'll be spending like three days working on like one minute of the show that becomes this big musical number. But what it started as was just some simple underscore for, you know, a simple line of narration. You don't have like a whole team of like producers and sound engineers and like, a, you know, a giant studio, like the apparatus that an NPR show has is I think is what people picture when they hear your show. But it's, it sounds like it's not the case. <laughs> These days I'm it's just me and, and a lot of friends who offer great feedback who I could not do it without and a lot of emotional support and stuff. But no, I mean, I'm the only one with my hands on on the edit. Yeah, I, I did a show. My my first, my, well, my first podcast was for an employer. But like when I started doing my own thing, my first show was a podcast about people that do what seem like unconventional things in their work. But when you talk to them, they explain it as very logical and exploring why that was the case. Mm -hmm. We called it unthinkable. And I did a weekly version of that show, which was a lot less sound design than your show. But it was narration, at least one interview, some sound design, lots of music. And I was doing it pretty much myself and I did probably 20 weeks in a row. And I, I thank God it was a podcast because if you put me on camera, I looked like the walking dead. It was yeah. just so freaking hard. <laughs> and I, I'm sure that, I mean, maybe that was a knowing laugh right there. I'm sure you're feeling it a little bit on your side too. Oh, I mean, I don't know any other way. Yeah. I mean, this is the hardest thing I've ever done by far. I mean, I literally like think about quitting everything every time I make an episode. What am I doing doing this? Like, what right do I have to make a podcast? What right do I have as a storyteller at all? Like, what has my whole life been leading toward? All of those things, all of those existential questions, I ruminate on to the point of thinking about quitting every single time I make an episode of this show. And I know that what the show is and what I'm trying to do is tonally in complete contrast to that. But to me, that's just what it is to make stuff. I don't know any other way, you know? But when you hit the bottom of, of the barrel, you know, it, that's when you find your reasons for why you you do it, I guess, you know? Why keep doing it? You said that's where you find your reasons. Like, what reasons have you found to keep doing it if it is that hard? It fulfills me. You know, it, it feels honest. You know, no one's here to tell me no. And when I lose myself in making it uh, it's the most fun i've ever had what's the reaction been to the show overall now that it's been out in the world for a full season and we're going to talk about season two which dropped today the day we're talking in february of 2020 but what, what's been the reaction like so far to season one and anything that surprised you yeah i mean i mean honestly i'm a little surprised that people think it's so incredibly weird like i just sort of i just set out to do a food show that was well produced and it came out sounding the way it did. And uh, I think it, it's definitely the weirdness has gotten more weird over the course of, you know, since episode one through episode 12. Definitely it got a little weirder, I think, because I just sort of started embracing it. But um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess I figured that a lot of people were out there doing weird podcasts and I just had never heard of them or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> um, 
but you know, it seems like a lot of podcasters are interested in how I make the show. And, and so it, it's a delight to be able to talk to you about some of that. And I, I mean, I'm flattered if anyone listens to the show at all, honestly, like uh, it's, I never thought of it as something that was for everyone. And I know it's not, but you can also say that about everything. Is it like super incredibly, please stop recording cliche to quote Anthony Bourdain as somebody who writes about food? No, of course not. Okay, cool. So one of the quotes he has is, there's something monstrous about doing creative work to put something out in the world that's come through your own perspective and expect people will like it enough to buy a book or stay past the commercial. There's something a little bit radical about the mentality that you have to be able to do that. And I find time and again that a lot of creators, whether it's a self-defense mechanism or it's just natural, I think it's maybe a bit of both. It's it's exactly what you just said. It's like, you know, I'm kind of doing this for me. It's fulfilling. And if other people like it, that's almost like gravy. It's like a, just a bonus for me. And you, you've kind of gone through that. Like you have season one in the books and season two came out today, like I mentioned does it change at all that you now know people are paying attention and having you on their shows to talk about it? Like, has it changed your approach because there's now that reaction? I hope not. Isn't it self-centered, the reasons for why people do things? But, it has um, to be. It has yeah, to be. I guess so. I mean, that's what this project is all about, I guess. But I mean, for me now, it, it's. I think it's more about like, how do I shake things up and and, and keep it fresh to where... I feel challenged in the work, you know, in the same way the show has solidified around an identity. And, you know, to me, it's very formally recognizable, although I know that maybe to the outsider, maybe it sounds quite improvised or or unplanned. Like to me, there is a, a familiar logic to how I build the shows, how I build the episodes. And so I I guess where I'm at with it now is like, how do I kind of like break it up and, and keep it fresh? And I'm inviting people into the world of my show to kind of influence how they see my show and, and, and make episodes with me. And, and that's a whole new chapter to the show. And um, it's opened up myriad challenges that both ones that I foresaw and ones that were completely unforeseen of, of collaborating with people, which I'm, I'm doing with some, some people I admire right now, which is really exciting for me, but it's like um, trying not to stagnate in, in what the show is. And, and uh, you know, it, I think that it can feel as hack to do your own convention as it does to do somebody else's convention. So I don't want to start aping my own voice or keep doing the same thing just because I've established and know that I can do it because then it wouldn't feel the same anymore. You right. Know? It, it's sort of like it's uh, because you've been doing it. And I think a show is the construct that almost like necessitates this. It's like you have different moments in an episode, then you have different episodes. And in a case like your show, you have different seasons. Like the construct of a show forces you to think about how do I not stagnate? How do I use this new opportunity, this new moment to reinvent somehow? Someone who's heard season one, if season two is somehow a carbon copy in sound and feel, like you said, you're aping yourself. Even the most loyal listener can say, eh, it's not so much for me anymore. Or you, the creator, can say, I'm starting to check out and so it's about this like constant reinvention. And I think that's what a great show does. I mean, it is self-centered at the end of the day, though. I'm doing it for myself. But it, it reminds me of something I think William Saroyan said about storytelling, which is all storytelling is just get the cat up the tree and then get the cat back down the tree. Right. But I try to take that into the actual process of, of my work where I don't know what's going to happen in season two. I just threw a bunch of ideas out there to people. You know, the only episode that's finished is the one that's out there in the world right now. And it wasn't finished when I released the trailer. And I didn't end season one because I knew what season two was going to be. You know, so it's almost like I'm getting the metaphorical cat up the tree <laughs> to challenge myself to find what's what's going to happen next, you know? Right, um, right. And and I've just found that's sort of the pattern that I've followed in my work is is always never knowing what's next. Like I made an episode where I, the pod God kidnaps Jimmy and he says, I'm going to eat Jimmy alive if you don't make another episode. And I didn't know what my next episode was going to be at that point. You know, I just put it out, but releasing it and, and challenging myself in that way to do something is how I've been able to move forward so far. And so I'm just trying to create new challenges. 
So I mentioned season two dropped today. Talk about that episode. It definitely is a almost like a subversion of your usual subversive show because it's something that uh, it gets very meta and different. And it also features one of my favorite podcast hosts, Ian Chillog from Everything is Alive, which uh, listeners to this show will have heard me talk about him and his show at the very top of this episode. So we're all on the same page about who he is and what his show is about. But talk to me about how you two collaborated in this episode. Well, Ian, you know, I'm a fan of his show and he had tweeted about my show and and we had started a little correspondence uh, from there and it turned out he was going to be out in L.A. Um, from New York. And, and so we said, let's meet for a drink. And um, and we did. And, you know, halfway through a glass of wine, I was like, you should do something on my show. And he was like, I would love to. And I was like, well, better take him up on it uh, before he changes his mind. <laughs> Come on, brain. And, Why won't you brain? And so he said, I want to interview the podcast. And I was like, what are you talking about? Then we made the episode that we made. They made the episode they made. Uh, you know, it's Ian talking to the podcast. And in a way, I see it as kind of a mind meld between our two shows, but it ends up being a little bit meta and perhaps overly, uh, to a fault, <laughs> self-reflexive. You know, it's definitely, it would not be the first episode of my podcast I would ever recommend listening to, but also... I put it out there because that's just how I do things. But it ends up being a little bit of a behind the scenes because if you're talking to a podcast as Ian was, you end up becoming the podcast as you're talking to it. <laughs> and so he ends up like inside the podcast, sort of walking around in the world of the show, which of course is not just the episodes that you've heard, but it's also all of the interviews and sounds and music and ideas and rough drafts and effort that goes into the show. So it's in a way, it's the most personal episode I think I will ever do. And I could not have imagined getting into these areas if it weren't for Ian, who took it there himself. I thank him for it. And, and I, I admire him so much. That's what I took away from that episode. And, and I mean, people should listen to it. It's a great episode. And I think all of season one is somewhat necessary to hear to just get all the inside jokes and, and running gags and the tone of the first episode of season two. But in that episode, the opening of season two, it's literally a podcast is appearing like the inanimate idea of a podcast is the guest on Ian Chillog's show. So but it's run on your feed. So Ian Chillog is interviewing Richard's famous food podcast, which obviously means that he's talking to you and you are playing the role of the entire podcast, which includes your specific voice as the host, all the characters, all the processes, all the technology, all the ins and outs, right? Like it's, it's very meta, like you said. And one of the things you said while voicing your podcast, which again, is just confusing to try and explain to people. So please go listen to it. You talked about how it's, you're not just the voices you hear. You're not just the sound and the music. It's not the final product that makes a project, podcast or otherwise. That that's the tip of the iceberg. You could say tip of the peak lay. It's it's just like it's there's so much more that goes into the project that people don't see that then makes the project possible. It's like every single thing from idea to final product and even everything preceding the idea, everything you are, everything in your life, it all rolls together to then make this final product possible. Well, I, I think that that's something that I've heard other creators say about their own work that, you know, when you look at uh, an album cover or, you know, you, you look at that DVD of that movie you made, I mean, what are you thinking about? Is, is the movie just playing in your head or are you thinking about, you know, those three months that you spent in Antigua and, and, and the relationships and, and, you know, the sacrifices that it took? And, you know, for me, when I look at this episode that just came out today uh, that I made with Ian Chillog, like I'm going to be thinking about, you know, having that glass of wine with him and, and and meeting him for the first time and and the collaboration that ensued from that. And, you know, like hopefully a relationship that will continue. I'm not going to be, you know, hearing the episode. And I think that it's important to bring those things to the fore sometimes to remember that uh, the work is not you know, the icon. It's just the result of something else. The one, the only, the they behind this epic podcast, Richard Parks III. 
Season two of Richard's Famous Food Podcast is now available everywhere. Eat it with your ears. Thanks to Contently, our episode sponsor today. Be sure to check out Contently's hilarious, weird, wonderful, yet pretty damn smart content strategy course and learn from the most creative content marketers in the world. Go to contently.com slash three clips. Form fill required. I'm Jay Akonzo, founder of Marketing Showrunners, and I believe great marketing isn't about who arrives, it's about who stays. So thanks for staying with me. I'll talk to you this coming Monday on the next episode of Three Clips. See ya. Here is this week's recommended read on the Marketing Showrunners blog. Should we ever pursue brand awareness for its own sake? Look, there's a lot of debate about the point of broad awareness and the move that a lot of marketers are trying to push for to embrace brand affinity as our goal. I mean, who cares about how many people are aware of us, how many people know we exist, because isn't all of this about who stays, who trusts and loves us? I mean, isn't that what marketers are in the business of doing, really? Earning trust, not alerting people that we are here. Hey, here's an alert. We did this thing. Check it out. No, it's about trust. It's about earning that trust. So there's a lot of debate around this idea and this move, and editor Molly Donovan sprinted straight into it in this piece. I loved it. It's the article, Should We Ever Pursue Brand Awareness for Its Own Sake? Check the bottom of your show notes for the link or search the blog at marketingshowrunners.com.